Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appetit. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 through 28, and it begins this way. The son of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me and please be seated. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the stories, the vignettes, uh, the principles and lessons that are there for us. Um, the layers, the complexities, um, the simplicities, everything that's in your word, Lord, as a master author, you lay out for us a beautiful work that reveals beautiful truths. Let this morning be a continuation of that work that we see you in the words that we read this morning. Amen. Well, again, hey, good morning. As he said, my name's Kyle, and I'd like to just start off by welcoming you, whether it's your first week here or one of many um, we're glad you're here, and, and so this is actually my first week at Collingswood, and so if yours is, uh, if this is your first week as well, if you're nervous, uh, just know that you're not alone, and there's really no reason to be. And, and for those of you who call Collingswood home, I'd like to just thank you all for having me. Man, I love any opportunity that I'm given to study God's Word and to share what I find there with others. And so with that said, I have to confess that this was a really challenging passage for me. Uh, it was work trying to wrap my head around what exactly it is that this passage is meant to teach us. And, and so as I studied for this message and I, I read other materials, I learned that I'm not alone in that struggle. In fact, this text in particular has been challenging for the church throughout history and for a variety of reasons. And unfortunately, because of the challenging nature of this text, there have been many misinterpretations that have been used in some really devastating ways. And so this text becomes in that great example of what happens when we take what God's given us outside of the boundaries that he's set and how bad interpretation and poor application can lead to grave consequences. 
And so really that's what I want to be our focus this morning, that regardless of how you interpret this passage, it should remain a story of how ignoring God's boundaries can have grave consequences. And so what I'd like to do this morning is walk you through really four questions I had to ask uh, of this passage while trying to understand what it was all about and, and so that together we may understand and find the lessons that apply to us today. And so here are those four foundational questions we're going to ask. First, why is the story here in the Bible? What's its literary context? Then, what is the author telling us in the story now? What's its immediate context? And from there, we'll, we'll ask, what would its original audience have learned from this story? And then finally, what can I, what can we learn with, this, with the totality of Scripture in our hands? And, and so we're going to ask those questions this morning. And, and really, I think they're good questions for you to have and possess as you look at any passage in Scripture. I think they set healthy boundaries around any biblical text interpretation. And so before we dive into those questions, let's just quickly remind ourselves of the basic plot of the text that we just read. All right, so here it is. Noah and his sons are introduced, but Ham and his son Canaan are highlighted. And we, we learn right away that one day these families will fill the earth with diverse peoples. Noah is reintroduced by becoming a gardener and man of the ground, but after growing his vineyard, he gets drunk off its wine and uncovers himself in his tent. His second son, Ham, then finds his father in this vulnerable state, and instead of showing him compassion or grace, he seizes the opportunity to take advantage of the circumstance in order to elevate himself at the expense of his father. Ham tells his brothers what he's done, inviting them into the act or asserting his new status. But instead, the brothers respond graciously to Noah in opposition to their brother, and they cover their father's nakedness. When Noah wakes up and realizes what had happened, he blesses his oldest and youngest son, Shem and Japheth. But then he curses not Ham, but Ham's fourth-born son, Canaan. And sometime after that, Noah dies. And so this is our story, and maybe you're all smarter than me, but at first I didn't think this story was very good. Uh, I didn't understand it, but that's where our questions become helpful and important. So that's where we'll start this morning. So with our basic plot in hand, we can ask ourselves that first question on our road towards understanding, and that's why is this story here? Why is the story in the Bible? What, what's its literary context? So let's start there. This morning we're, we're finishing chapter 9. This is the end of the flood narrative, but it's also the beginning of a new world. So far the book of Genesis began with the creation of the first world where God plants a garden and places man in it to attend it and care for it. And it's a place where the divine and the mortal all exist together. But very quickly this temptation is introduced into this world and humanity sees that temptation desires it for themselves, so they step outside the boundaries that God set in place to take what wasn't theirs, and it leads to grave consequences. And that's Genesis 1 through 3. And then the very next story introduces the second generation of man with a son uh, named Cain, and he's also a man of the ground. And he too faces this temptation 
and to take something that's not his. This time it's not fruit, but a life. And again, he crosses some serious boundaries that God had put in place, and the consequences are grave, literally. And in both of these cases, those consequences result in a, a curse that stretches for generations. So that from Genesis 5 to 6, we see then that generation after generation suffer those consequences, which all lead to the grave. And so from this mile-high view of Genesis, the end of chapter 9 is yet another story in an 11-chapter fall of creation. And this is why this text is here. It's the continuation of the introduction of the dilemma that the rest of Scripture seeks to solve. That despite our best efforts, our heart's desire is to do evil even from our youth. And despite the instruction and warning from God... We constantly desire to live by our own definitions of good and evil. And in that we take things that aren't ours to take. And we continually cross the boundaries that God put in place to get them. And every time we do that, the consequences are grave. And so listen, I'm going to say that a lot in this sermon. That consequences are grave. Because I think we need to hear that. I think too often we take how, for, for granted how deeply our sin grieves God and how grave those consequences really are. But see, when we do that, we forget that the wages of sin is always death. And when we do that, we make light of how heavy the cross was and the cost that Christ paid. So again, our text this morning in its greater context is really just driving home the primary problem of Scripture that we can't help but cross God's boundaries. It's in our nature, and the consequences are grave. And so here's our, our fence that we have to stay within as we seek to understand this story, that no matter how we interpret it at its core, it's a story about our relationship to sin. So that's our larger context. But, but now we can kind of look at its immediate context, why this story is placed exactly where it is. And taking this closer look, we find that one of the purposes of this text is actually for it to be a transitional passage. It simultaneously serves as the bookend to the flood and the introduction to the tower. And so it closes Noah's chapter while simultaneously opening anew. And so when we read it as a bookend to the flood narrative, we see that the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 6, they're actually two intentionally similar stories of sons trying to take what's not theirs, which somehow introduces a new people group that will be a problem for God's people later. And so both point us to the flood and the idea that the problem of wicked peoples requires a solution. And our story, it, it then points us towards something we've seen before, but also foreshadows a problem ahead that needs a solution. And again, all of this is just reinforcing that larger dilemma that Scripture presents and the rest of the Bible seeks to solve. That whether God places us in a garden of delight or in a field with our brothers, on a boat or in a vineyard full of wine, when temptation is there, our tendency is to cross God's boundaries and the consequences are grave and their impact is generational. 
And with that, I want to stop and ask you this this morning. Do you see your sin that way? Do you recognize or how often do you consider that the sin in your life, even the ones that seem so small or insignificant, are the reason that death exists? Our sin is the reason that death exists. Just sit with that for a moment. You know, what's worse is that if we consider the gravity of sin for just a moment longer, we quickly find that our sin is not only the reason for our own deaths, but that our sin impacts and harms those around us, especially the ones we love most. That the sins of a father, a parent's sins have generational effects on our families. And it's not enough that we carry the emotional scars inflicted by our parents, sometimes real ones too, but that our sin does the same to our children. Parents, your sins hurt your children. Sin has grave consequences. And so the end of Genesis 9 in its immediate context shows us that the problem before the flood is still there after. That sin is generational in its effects. But by highlighting Ham's son Canaan, the story serves as the origin of the Canaanite people, born to a father whose sins cursed an entire family line. And so that's its immediate context. Now besides majorly killing the vibes, what the point of the story is, what we, what we can learn if we were people today, that's, that's our, next, our next question. What's the point of telling this depressing story? When we ask that question, I, I think in order to ask that question, we have to enter into the shoes of the people who would have originally received it. So our question is, if we were one of Moses' first hearers, what would we have learned from the story? And so to do that, I want to start with an exercise of our imagination. So if you'd like, you can close your eyes. But let's imagine ourselves as a group of young Hebrews. We're wandering in the desert, which means we're probably tan. Our diet consists of manna and quail, so we're probably thin. And we walk all day, so we've got to be fit. So tan, skinny, and built like a rock did we just describe Pastor Jim on holiday. <laughs> all right, but, but, but in all seriousness, if we're an original recipient, it means we're a people who were freed from slavery now wandering in the wilderness and desert, a desolate land, and then we hear the story of Noah turning a barren land into a vineyard. What a beautiful picture. Yet at the same time, we hear how he was tempted by wine and how he falls into drunkenness. What would I have done with that? How would I have read that? I think we would have remembered the Garden of Eden. And I think we would have remembered God dwelling with his representatives there. And remember the call to be fruitful and multiply and to steward the blessings that God had given them. And I think seeing Noah as a man of the ground would connect him to Adam in our minds. 
and the story of Noah's sons one day becoming the nations of the earth and Noah's planted vineyard would be at first a hopeful picture. That maybe Noah is the son who brings the rest and comfort that his name implies. Is Noah the son promised in the first garden? A descendant of Adam that would be a better Cain, who, who could defeat the adversary of old, who could overcome sin, and who could be the kind of ruler on earth that God desired for man to be. I think we would have asked that question. But I also think that seeing Noah, God's second attempt at this righteous representative, uh, fall to temptation and take the fruit of the garden out of bounds would serve as a harsh reminder of the reality of sin and its power over even the most righteous of persons. That even one who God shows favor and blessing isn't free from the snare of sin passed down for generations. And while Noah isn't the primary focus of our text, I think these few verses serve to teach us an important lesson. And it's that even good things taken out of God's boundaries can have grave consequences. Even good things taken out of God's boundaries can have grave consequences. See, Noah, after being brought through the flood, is established as the representative of God in this dead and barren land. And God invites him into a covenant relationship to work with him and to fill that barren space with life. And it's a good thing. And now Noah and his family, they begin these good works and Noah plants a vineyard, but when he sees its fruit, he crosses boundaries set by God. And like Adam, who came before, takes the garden's fruit and indulges himself in it, and it leaves him naked and in shame. And unlike Adam before, Noah had every freedom to take the fruit of this garden. But Noah's sin wasn't that he took it, but that he took it too far. And so here's where we have to pause again and consider that good things taken out of God's boundaries have gave grave consequences. And so again, I know for some of you that probably sounds like an overstatement, grave consequences, but I wanted the alliteration and I think it's true. So scripture tells us this in more than one way that the wages of all sin is death and too often we forget that that's the case. And again, when we do that, we take for granted how deeply that grieves God and we diminish the work that Jesus accomplished on our behalf on the cross. So yes, good things taken out of God's boundaries have grave consequences. And Genesis 1 through 9 should have made this very clear that sin leads to death. So this morning as we consider that, the question that we ask ourselves is what are some good things that we've taken out of God's boundaries. Where or what are you tempted to take too far? And so as I thought about that question this week, one of the places that my mind went was to the po political landscape that we're in right now. Over the past few years, I've seen so many people divide over political convictions taken too far. And so this morning, have you crossed that boundary? Have you taken your politics so far that you're willing to break ties with others over it? Have you done that already? Are you really choosing to break the unity that Christ died to give his people over the politics of this world? And if so, I have to tell you that that's sin and there's people you need to reconcile with. 
God's kingdom and his politics must reign supreme for his people. We are his ambassadors of his kingdom and no other. Don't lose sight of that. Keep politics in proper bounds. Now, for others, politics might not be your poison. And so maybe for some of you, it really is food or drink. Maybe it's wine. And listen, it's unpopular to talk about these things today, but both food and drink can become indulgent sins. And both can have serious consequences on your health or your families. And listen, none of us are exempt from that. In fact, this past month, I've been working really hard to keep my relationship with food in check. I even hired a nutritionist because these last two years, like for many of us, have been challenging. And it's easy to let something like food become the comforter that God's meant to be. So if your relationship with food or with drink have been taken too far, that's sin. And we need to put both in proper bounds. And for others still, maybe it's none of those things, but perhaps it's your community or your family or your comfort, all of which are really good things, but taken too far become uh, things that isolate us and disconnect us from the world around us. And we become blind to the needs of those in our proximity. So listen, don't become slaves to your families or your children's calendars. That too can move outside of the bounds of what's healthy and right. And when that happens, it becomes sin. And so I can't list all the good things that God's given us that we can take too far. But you know, you know what it is for you. And as God's people then, we have to ask this question. What good things have we taken out of God's bounds? What have we taken too far? Listen, it has consequences that are graver than we realize. And those things impact our families for generations. And, and so the story from here shifts away from Noah in verse 22 and 28 towards Ham. And this is where it gets tricky. This is where much of the debate and confusion has existed since antiquity because of the fuzzy nature of the few details we have. But that's what makes our context so important because both its larger and its immediate context serve to give us proper boundaries for how to understand this text. So whatever we believe about this text, it has to be in line with everything that's come before and everything that comes after. And you know, for, a long, for as long as this passage has been around, there have been debates over how to understand the details of the story. And really, there's two, maybe three questions that people have sought to answer in relationship to this text. And so the first is this, what on earth was Ham's sin? What did he do that was so bad? That's the first question. And the second question that immediately follows is why was Ham's fourth son the one cursed for what Ham did? In other words, what does this son why does the son have to carry the curse of his father's sin? And so these are two really important questions that this text forces us to ask. Um, so I feel like I have to address those briefly. If one of the primary purposes of this text is to be the introduction to the Canaanite people, we have to answer the question of how does this do that? 
And the answer to these questions have been debated by scholars, commentators, critics for literally hundreds, if not thousands of years. So we have to be humble as we consider those things. But here quickly are the three main suggestions that have stood the test of time. So warning, I'm about to nerd out. The first is called voyeurism. It's the claim that Ham simply saw his dad naked and chose to shame him by telling others of his father's vulnerable state. Um, this is probably the most popular perspective, and, and it's the one we're most familiar with. It's at the surface, um, an easy read that refuses any ideas that aren't explicit in the text. The potential problems here, though, are the unanswered questions of why Ham's fourth-born son is the one cursed so significantly. And it assumes a taboo that one scholar notes one must defend a custom about which we know nothing, as in we don't have other evidence uh, of somebody walking in on their dad being such a terrible offense. But different commentators within this view have found some really persuasive explanations for this text taking this view, but nonetheless, these are things you have to wrestle with. The second view that gained popularity by certain rabbinic traditions was that Ham actually circumcised his father to cut off any further potential lines of Noah uh, and in so doing, it's an attempt to usurp his father's authority. So this view helps to explain an event that was so evil as to warrant a curse. Uh, and a curse on the fourth born son because it prevented Ham from having one himself. Uh, this gained popularity as evidence was found of similar stories from that time having a similar motif. However, there's no real biblical evidence of this and really there's nothing within our specific text to support that reading. And then the final view is probably the darkest. Um, it suggests that Ham did something sexual with either his father or Noah's wife. And it then suggests that Canaan was the illegitimate child of that encounter. And so that's the purpose of the curse on Canaan, that he was this illegitimate child. Again, this would be an attempt at his father's position. And this view has found some popularity uh, because it explains the explicit focus on Canaan in the text. It explains why he's the one cursed. Um, and there's other stories with a similar motif and similar language that would push somebody that way. But the issue is that none of the actions are explicit in the text, so it would require you to be comfortable with reading in idioms and implied references. So these are the three main arguments that people make, suggestions for how to read this text. If you so choose to dig deeper, there's a comprehensive article by Scott Walker Hahn and John Sheets Bergma that goes through all of these. It does have a bias, but I think it's fair to all of them. But here's my warning. It's really easy somebody like me to get caught up in trying to understand every detail of a text like this. So if you're like me, don't get distracted away with the unknowns and the unclears. Don't get pulled away from the ultimate warnings and lessons this text has to offer. Because regardless of how you read this story, its main purposes remain the same. That crossing God's boundaries results in grave consequences that can stretch for generations. But even despite the warnings and the discouragements and the confusions found in this text, there's also hope that can be found here. That even though Noah's righteousness wasn't enough to save him from sin and death, that regardless of the fact that the floods was a failure in its ability to stop sin's corruption, and despite Ham's attempt at power, 
There's still good people who seek to walk with God and within his boundaries. As we see Shem and Japheth serve as that reminder that we can be better. And more than that, verse 26, the blessing shows us how God remains faithful to his promises and his plans. That he remained the God of Shem, the ancestor and forefather of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God remained committed to these people, remembering them in their affliction, rescuing them from slavery, now leading them through the desert and towards the promised land. God was faithful to his people and his promises. And I believe that if we were in the desert, we would have been uh, inspired to keep going, following God's pillar and cloud, walking within the boundaries of the course that he set before us. Because we know that following God will lead us to the promised land in Canaan. So again, if I I think if we were the original hearers, this would be a story of warning not to cross those boundaries that God put in place and of the consequences there are for doing so. But I also think that this would be a story of hope, ultimately of victory for his people who God's faithful to when they follow him as he leads to the fulfillment of his promises. The hope in this story is that God is faithful to his promises even when we fail to meet our own and that walking within God's bounds with faith leads to God's blessing. I think that's what we would have learned if we were the original recipients and I think we can still be blessed by those truths today. And so that leads us to our final question this morning. What does God want to teach us now? What applications are uniquely there for us today? You know, I think everything we've seen so far is still true. But today, this is a story reminding us of this reality of temptation and our propensity to cross those boundaries and to take things and take things too far and the grave consequences that follow. But this is also a story pointing us to the faithfulness of God who remains steadfast to his promises and to his people. But for today, we also have this opportunity to see not only this story, but also its fulfillment. That the pattern that began with the first Adam that worked its way through Cain and through Noah ultimately ends in Christ. That he is the new and greatest Adam. He is the representative and ruler that God has always desired man to be. That when Jesus enters a garden, he doesn't fall to temptation leading to death, but uses his death to bring life. And when Jesus sees an opportunity for power, he doesn't put his father to shame in order to elevate himself, but he submits himself to the father who then bestows power on him. And instead of filling himself with wine, Jesus pours himself out as an offering for others. Jesus is the son who gains power by glorifying his father, whose whose father blesses him and entrusts him to be the ruler and representative he created man to be. Jesus is the greater Adam. Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the son who brings rest. But beyond the general warning and hope, there's one more thing this story uniquely offers us today. And it's the thing that blessed me most this week. You know, the blessing in verse 26, it says that God is the God of Shem. 
And we know that Israel comes from this line. But did you know that in Jesus, both the blood of Shem and the blood of Canaan runs through his veins? That in Jesus, even a curse passed down for generations can be redeemed. In Joshua chapter 2, we find a Canaanite woman, a prostitute named Rahab, who trusts in the promises of God and is welcomed into his family for it. And because of her, Canaanite blood runs through Christ's veins. And for me, this is everything. Because I didn't grow up in the best house. My father was an angry man who was raised by an angry man. And that anger came out in a lot of destructive and painful ways. And because of that, I now carry the scars, both physical and emotional, that come from my family of origin. And so as I got married, and I think about having children, one of my greatest fears is that I'm destined for the same. That the consequences of my father's sins and his father's before him would be inescapable for me. And that I would be to my family who he was to mine. But then I read the end of this story, and I'm reminded of the genealogy of Christ and the work that he did, which rescued me and reminds me that Jesus is greater than any curse or consequence. And that because of him and in him, the pattern that began in the garden is broken so that I'm free to walk this new path that he lays before me within the boundaries that he has set. And I can follow confidently this new road, knowing it leads to promised blessings and a land that he's prepared for me. Jesus frees us from the curses of our fathers. And so if you're here this morning and feel that you're destined for failure because of your family of origin, know that Christ invites you into a new family with a new father and a new brother who love you unconditionally and who can heal what's broken and what feels inescapable. And if you're here this morning and feel like the consequences of your sin have been too severe or grave to be accepted or redeemed, remember that the once cursed blood of Canaan ran through Christ's veins when it was poured out as a drink offering for you. Even cursed blood is transformed by Christ. Let him do that for you and experience the rest that only he can bring. Crossing God's boundaries have grave consequences that can stretch for generations. But in Christ, there's a cure for the curse and it's life eternal for all who believe. Would you believe that this morning? Let's, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that are there. Even in challenging text, Lord, there's beautiful conclusions. That you give us warning, that you give us instruction, but you also give us hope. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room or listening from home this morning, that we would receive, that we would see, and we would put our faith in the hope that only you can offer. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, 
The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of A Preaching After Party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.